Welcome back to The Re-Education. Today's show looks at the man who performed a hostile takeover of the Iraqi state in 1979, Saddam Hussein. His reign ended 20 years ago this week because George W. Bush decided to take him out. My guest is one of the officials who knows this story from the inside. David Wormser, he served as a Pentagon analyst and later an advisor to Vice President Cheney during George W. Bush's administration. In Baghdad, the Iraqi government has announced plans to investigate why Saddam Hussein was taunted in the final moments before his hanging. Cell phone footage shows masked guards chanted the name of Shiite cleric Muqtad al-Sadr and then told the former Iraqi president to go to hell. The treatment of Saddam Hussein has sparked protests around the world. Former NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw said Hussein's execution, quote, resembled the worst kind of nightmare out of the old American West. That was Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! Summing up the reaction to the execution on December 30th, 2006, of one of the worst tyrants in modern Middle Eastern history, Saddam Hussein. Even Tom Brokaw is disappointed. And it's true, many progressives at the time, already disgusted by the grinding civil war in Iraq, seized on the vengeful quality of the hanging, the cell phone video, the Sadrist chant, as more evidence that the war that rid the world of this demon was a waste. What kind of democracy hangs its last leader while the executioner shouts that he's going to hell? Well, I understand the point, but it's a bit more complicated. And here, my thoughts turn to the fate of Benito Mussolini. He and his mistress were taken to a farmhouse, lined up against a wall and sprayed with submachine gun bullets. And then their torches were taken to Piazzello Loreto in Milan, and throngs of furious Italians began a savage desecration. The lifeless bodies were shot, mangled, urinated on. Then they were hung by their ankles near a gas station. So I guess I asked the question in light of Saddam, is Italy not a democracy today because their fascist leader's body was lynched? Now, all things considered, Saddam Hussein got off pretty easy. Gaddafi was gunned down in a gutter. Ceausescu's faced a firing squad. You know, it's rare that a tyrant as wicked as Saddam dies of natural causes. Suppose the best you could hope for in that situation would be an Adolf Hitler who took his own life before the Allies could find him. And the death of the Iraqi dictator, as gruesome as it was, was a necessary precondition for any chance of Iraqi democracy, not the evidence of its negation. And that's why I start my monologue today with the execution of Saddam Hussein. Because in this sense, it was bittersweet. I think it's something to be proud of that American arms ended the reign of a butcher. But the manner of the butcher's demise revealed the barbarism that had replaced him. The great Iraqi historian and novelist Kanan Makia captured this idea in his book, Cruelty and Silence. And what he wrote is that his countrymen made the, quote, all too human mistake, quote, to, quote, of allowing ourselves to believe that there is something redeeming in the quality of victimhood itself. There isn't. The very opposite is likely to be the case. The victims of cruelty or injustice are not only no better than their tormentors, they are more often than not just waiting to change place, end quote. Now, Makia, in his 2016 novel, The Rope, named for the rope that hung Saddam Hussein, describes this dynamic as pitting 
the Sunni knife against the Shia drill. And it's a painful reference to a kind of torture that was practiced by the Shia death squads in the mid-2000s. As they would seek out their vengeance after the 2003 liberation, they would take power drills to the kneecaps of their captives. So I want to stick with Kanamakia just for a minute here, because before the war in 2003, he was a really persuasive voice for the liberation of Iraq. His book, The Republic of Fear, painted a grim and merciless history of Saddam's campaign against Kurds and Shia in the aftermath of the first Gulf War. And he's an Iraqi who became an American. He, he taught for many years at Brandeis University. And as an American, he advocated for the liberation of the country which he fled from. And it's a very American story. We see that time and again, that groups that come over here still have an interest in the homeland and want to kind of fight for freedom from whence they came. It reveals in a lot of ways the weakness of all tyrannies, which is that they drive away genius. The most talented leave and the rest are forced to endure the daily cruelties and humiliations of autocracy. Now, those cruelties in the case of Iraq, it warped the entire nation. And in my view, it was the predication for the bloodletting that followed the liberation of Iraq. And this point has been memory hold and is still probably controversial for most commentators and Americans today, because it's the conventional wisdom that the brutality committed by Iraqis against Iraqis is the fault of America. It was seen as a sort of direct consequence of the invasion. And to give this point a little, you know, to sort of give the devil its due, so to speak, to flesh that out, America for the first few years was the effectively the administrator of Iraq and responsible for its security. So it had failed in many ways to kind of keep a lid on things. But to blame it all on America is, in my view, not only is it wrong, but it's kind of to, you know, kind of, it's a false history. And I want to play this clip here from Kanamakia because to his credit, I don't think he ever loses sight of the role that Saddam played in warping Iraqi society, even as he has to come to terms, as we all did, of, you know, some of the horrors in the post-Saddam Iraq. Uh, Kanamakia, you're no stranger to controversy over things that you've either done or written about Iraq. In, in this book, there are moments when I'm wondering, are you saying that Iraq has descended to a point and to a point of violence that is as bad or worse than it was under Saddam Hussein? Are you, do you regret the past 25 years? I mean, how, how close are you coming to saying things are that bad? Things are very bad, uh, but I can't change my positions because of how bad they have become now. Things were also equally or very bad under Saddam. There was no future. Once the future was made possible, Iraqis did the worst possible job out of it. They went from bad to worse. That means I'm part of that failure. I've got to argue and criticize my own, quote unquote, because I have to deal with the fact that they failed. Right. So it's worth diving into a question here that the interviewer is sort of getting at there. Would the violence that engulfed Iraq since 2003 have been prevented had we just left Saddam in place? Did America's intervention break Iraq or was Iraq already broken? Now, I think it's totally fair to argue that attempting to save an Iraq that Saddam and his family had hijacked was neither worth the blood or the treasure that it eventually cost to do that. But to erase the tyrant's role in the horror that followed his regime is well, it's, a t it's, it's, in my, it's, a, it's pernicious. It's like, a, again, it's a false history. 
To illustrate this, we have to go back to 1979. The Ba'athist president, al-Bakr, had just died a natural death. And his vice president at the time was Saddam. And he was this ruthless guy. He was one of the plotters of the 1968 coup that brought the Ba'ath Party to power in Iraq. And he built up the vicious security services and intelligence service that targeted his political enemies and just a lot of regular Iraqi citizens in the 1970s. And I should also say that in this period, Saddam was largely seen as the real power behind the presidency. It was, you know, he was basically running it, but he did not have the title, the top spot. And, you know, this is in the 1970s. He's somebody who was really, you know, provided a safe haven for the worst Palestinian terrorists and other international terrorists, such as like the Carlos the Jackal had at one point safe haven in Iraq and support from Saddam Hussein. And also at the time, Iraq was somewhat aligned with the Soviet Union. Anyway, 1979 was a year of great change in the Middle East. In neighboring Iran, an Islamic revolution unseated Reza Pahlavi and the the Shah. And the new regime in Tehran initiated this hostage crisis that doomed Jimmy Carter's re-election in 1980. And that's the world in which sort of Saddam makes his move. So it takes place at a meeting of the ruling Ba'ath Party. His henchmen had tortured another apparat into confessing to an imaginary plot. And then the names of his imaginary co-conspirators were read aloud as stunned officials in the audience who were named were then taken away. I want to play this brief little clip here. It's a dramatization of that fateful day from the HBO 2008 series called House of Saddam. Muhammad Ayesh, Fuad Abdullah, Ahmed Amin, Amjid Hashim, Kurdi Abdel Baqi, Badr Abdullah. We have done nothing. Ahmed Mukhtar. We have done nothing. Haydar Jason. You're innocent. Ali Hussein. This is all lies. Go on. I am innocent. Anyway, this event is one of those rare moments in history where a real purge was actually captured on video. I'm not playing it because it's grainy and it's largely in Arabic. I think you get more out of it in the American and the HBO version of it. But there is this historical record and we have it all on video. It's kind of amazing. And that's the moment where Saddam sort of fully takes over the state. And not only was it preserved for history at the time, it was also broadcast on Iraqi television. And that's also important. And, you know, you could sort of see it for yourself. The names being read aloud, the henchmen walking away, their gasps and shouts. Still about half of those assembled are gone. And then the other half of the audience rises to its feet to praise the new leader. In some sense, I'd imagine relieved that they were not named. I want to play here a little bit from Christopher Hitchens, and he narrates what happened next. And then there's the second half, uh, which has been seen by much fewer people and was not shown on PBS, uh, where the surviving half are told to go out in the yard and are given guns and are told to shoot the convicted half. Now they're in the plot. Now, they're, now they are cemented to the leadership. So think about that for a minute. Televised act of political mass violence is deliberately broadcast, so it is seared into Iraqi memory. It's the moment that Iraq is no longer sort of regular nation state. It is now captive to a tyrant. And that staged violence was just the beginning. Saddam soon made war after consolidating his power in Baghdad. On September 22nd, 1980, he ordered his military to invade Iran. It was a fool's errand and a pointless war that lasted until 1988. At least a million people on both sides perished because of this act of aggression that only ended in stalemate. 
I should say both sides of this war committed horrible atrocities, but Saddam did use chemical weapons against the Iranians, as he would later do against the Kurds. After that war was finished, Saddam launched a campaign against Kurdish civilians in the northern provinces of his country, and this was the infamous Anfal Campaign. A conservative estimate is that 50,000 perished because of this campaign. By the way, Anfal is named for the chapter of the Quran dealing with the spoils of war. And in the process, he depopulated this region, which was agriculturally so rich, and he would send whole families to these camps where they were to be Arabized. And we see something like that today in Western China with the Chinese Communist Party and the Han majority dealing with the Uyghur minority there. Anyway, Saddam's thirst for blood, still not sated. In 1990, his army invaded Kuwait. There's an interesting story here. He misinterpreted signals from a U.S. ambassador in Baghdad named April Glasby. Sometimes that is seen as sort of an excuse, like you can't blame this guy. I mean, I don't want to make any excuses for Saddam Hussein. It was insane to think that he could just invade Kuwait and make it another province in his country. Anyway, as we all know, he miscalculated. We have no argument with the people of Iraq. Indeed, for the innocents caught in this conflict, I pray for their safety. Our goal is not the conquest of Iraq. It is the liberation of Kuwait. It is my hope that somehow the Iraqi people can, even now, convince their dictator that he must lay down his arms, leave Kuwait, and let Iraq itself rejoin the family of peace-loving nations. Now, so that, of course, was George H.W. Bush announcing the military operations that ended up liberating Kuwait. Now, in the clip that we just heard, there's also a bit of wish casting. I, I put that in deliberately. Because you have to ask yourself, how is it possible, as George H.W. Bush is kind of musing at the time, that the people of Iraq could possibly persuade this vicious monster of anything, let alone persuade him to accept the defeat in this war that he started, to accept this humiliation. So I play that there because, as we'll see, a sort of theme kind of comes up after the war as well. Now, after the international coalition succeeds, the U.S. military stops short of marching to Baghdad. The CIA at the time was predicting that Saddam would be finished by a palace coup. And here it's important to understand that George H.W. Bush had a couple things on his mind. Number one, he did not want to get America sucked into another Vietnam. And he didn't want to have the United States in a situation of rebuilding an already broken country. He also had an international coalition. This was an, an extraordinary moment. The United States had basically just won the Cold War. And so you had a coalition of other Arab states. Syria was involved. Russia, there was unanimity at the UN Security Council for this. You know, Saddam had basically invaded Kuwait, and it was him against the world at that point. Now, you know, since the 2003 war, there is, a, you know, this conventional wisdom that Bush and his cabinet, Colin Powell at the time, made the wise choice, and they kept America out of a quagmire. But I got to ask, I don't know if that's entirely true, and let me, let me explain why. The defeat of Saddam's army in Kuwait, well, it, it naturally sparked a rebellion. Treating of cities like Karbala and Basra in the south, which are Shia majority, well, they, they basically kind of, there was an uprising. And at the time, Bush wouldn't commit U.S. forces to end Saddam's regime, but he also encouraged the Iraqis to rise up. I've always said that it would be that the Iraqi people should put him aside, and that would facilitate uh, uh, the resolution of all these problems that exist. And certainly, 
uh, would facilitate the acceptance of Iraq back into the family of peace-loving nations. All right, well, that was a terrible blunder. Saddam's military was defeated, but it still had about half of the tanks it had before the war. There were lots of other guns. It had gunship helicopters. General Norman Schwarzkopf, who was commanding the coalition on the ground, he negotiated a ceasefire then, you know, with inst under instructions from the Pentagon and all that, and it ended the hostilities. And here I want to play a clip from the BBC documentary on this particular moment. And here Schwarzkopf basically says why he allowed Saddam to use his attack helicopters. Once the talks got underway, Schwarzkopf got everything he wanted. But so did the Iraqis. What they were most concerned about was that this was going to be a permanent border. And, and over and over again, they kept saying, is this a permanent border or is this just temporary? And I kept having to reassure them that, no, this is not a permanent border. This is a temporary demarcation line between our forces. And then this fellow looked at me and said, well, can we fly our helicopters? And I knew the great devastation we had inflicted upon their roads and their bridges. And that seemed like a very reasonable request to me. All right. So that decision that allowed Saddam to use his attack helicopters, well, it sealed the fate of the Shia who rose up in the uprising in the aftermath of the war. It's a terrible story. Karbala is a holy city for the Shia faith, and Saddam's military went inside and massacred people who were seeking refuge in one of their more important mosques. And it's, I think, vitally important to sort of know this part of history, because what it shows is that America's intervention in Iraq really begins in 1991, and it's not 2003. Because despite the predictions of the CIA, Saddam did survive. And over time, Saddam grew defiant. So remember, he signs a ceasefire with Norman Schwarzkopf. Part of the ceasefire is you've got to demonstrate that you have disarmed. You, you no longer have this war machine that you built up before you invaded Kuwait. And of course, that included chemical and biological weapons, and as well as a nuclear program, which was further along than anyone had thought it would have been when it was discovered again in 1991. And Saddam had agreed to it, but here he was over the 1990s. He would, you know, kick out UN inspectors. He would shoot at surveillance aircraft. He would defy the terms of that ceasefire. And that then meant that the United States had to support and through the UN what's known as, you know, these sanctions, which basically meant that only that the oil, which is the main export for Iraq, could only be sold for, you know, food and medicine. It's known as the UN oil for food program. And even there, we learned after 2003 that Saddam skimmed money from that program. It was at a bank in Paris, and he would purchase spoiled baby food, and spoiled food and spoiled goods, give them to his population. A lot of times they would be useless and then kind of pocket the results. And then it was a double win for him because this was another PR victory. We can say these sanctions are starving my population when in fact, the reason that they're in this situation is because Saddam allowed the oil for food program to become so corrupted and would not demonstrate that he had disarmed. So I want to now quote from Kanan Makia, who I think captures this brilliantly. He's, this is him writing before the 2003 war in dissent. He writes, quote, my position rests on the exceptional nature of Ba'athist totalitarianism in Iraq and is therefore not extendable to all the nasty states that exist in the world. Moreover, it derives from the particular historical experience dating back to the 1991 Gulf War that binds the United States to Iraq, the outcome of that war, which left the dictator in place and precipitated one of the harshest sanctioned regimes of recent times, places an extraordinary moral responsibility upon the shoulders of the United States 
to finish that which in a very important sense was left unfinished, end of quote. Kanan McKee was not alone. Here is former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher from that BBC documentary. Well, I was no longer there. I think perhaps I might have argued it very differently if I had been, and very firmly. Uh, and I think that I might have said, look, um, maybe this thing would never have got started unless I was a firm enough ally to do it. And I can only tell you that in my experience, we've got to uh, do the job properly before we finish. Now, there's one other way that America had already intertwined in Iraqi history way back when in 1991, and that is that the bloodbath that follows the ceasefire inside of Iraq was too much to bear for George H.W. Bush. So later in the year, he establishes a no-fly zone over northern Iraq. Eventually, one was formed over southern Iraq. And the one for the Kurdish region of northern Iraq, it actually was a, it turned out to be kind of a great thing because those American planes patrolling the sky between 1991 and 2003, well, it gave the Kurds a kind of head start, gave them the space and security to establish a regional government that stands to this day. Again, not a perfect regional government, but certainly a lot better than what they had when they were constantly under threat from being wiped out by Saddam Hussein. Anyway, so by the time that George W. Bush was president, following the attacks of 9-11, Iraq was still out of compliance with the ceasefire that ended the first Gulf War. The Iraqi people suffered the twin plagues of sanction and dictatorship. And America, if you remember, was still the most powerful country in the world. So it was not out of the question to think that whether they were humanitarian concerns or like proliferation concerns, global security, regional security, these were things that were very much in America's ambit at the time. I don't want to get into the entire history in the run-up to the war. We know the Bush administration relied on intelligence that was wrong. Saddam did not have stockpiles of chemical and biological weapons, but Saddam also went out of his way to publicly defy the weapons inspectors. So, you know, this is the period where, you know, even Bill Clinton, who certainly didn't want to get in a war with Iraq, you know, he fired airstrikes on various Iraqi targets in like 1998 when he kicked the inspectors out again and all this stuff. And it was like a part of the strategy. And this is now, according to the head of the weapons inspectors team, he was originally the deputy, but then he became the head of it guy by the name of Charles Dolfer. And the strategy was that Saddam would basically try to persuade his neighbors that he had these WMDs, but he would eventually try to wiggle out from under the sanctions while preserving his capability to produce them within a few months. I want to play now a brief snippet of Dolfer's testimony in 2006 before the Senate. There's no doubt in your mind. He's in power today. The sanctions are gone. He would be pursuing them because that was his history. He had two life experiences where they saved him, which is, I think, why some of the pre-war assessments were colored. I mean, people would kind of look at it and said, well, why wouldn't he have these things? Okay. Well, as we know, America really didn't find weapons of mass destruction. There were some old shells that were buried that were found, but it wasn't what was promised. But I think we should pay attention to what America and the coalition forces did find. They found mass graves. When U.S. soldiers discovered Iraq's office of the International Olympic Committee, it was under the rain, it was run by Saddam's demented son, Uday, they recovered medieval torture equipment, Iron Maiden, a rack that Uday would use on athletes that were bested in international competition. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine something, but this is really another level of sadism that this twisted, rotten demon, Uday Hussein, would torture athletes that didn't perform well enough, I guess, in soccer or whatever. 
But U.S. forces also recovered videotapes of routine torture from the Iraqi military and the intelligence services. Let me just go through a couple of these. I think it's important to remember. So one was bound prisoners. So their ankles would be tied together and their arms behind their backs would be thrown off of like a three-story rooftop where that wouldn't kill you, but it would cause a very serious injury. There was video evidence of a man wielding an axe that chopped off someone's finger. Another was interrogators literally cutting out the tongues of prisoners. We associate this with like, I don't know, the Cali cartel, the mafia, international crime organizations. But we should also note that it's in the case of Iraq, a criminal organization, a mafia had taken over a state. And so we should not be surprised at this kind of brutality. Eventually, American soldiers also found the bedraggled dictator hiding in a spider hole near his hometown of Tikrit. I love the detail of this. I mean, first of all, they find Saddam. He looks like crap. He's got a, a mangled kind of beard. His hair's unkempt. But in his spider hole, they found like hand creams and lotions and stuff. It was like he was trying to hold on to like one little bit from his time when he was, you know, living in these palaces with untold luxury. And I would say his capture was a humiliation. There were photographs of him in a jumpsuit. They were handcuffed. It was all these were beamed all over the world. And one famous one is where you have a soldier sort of looking in his mouth. Like, you know, you would look for like contraband and stuff like that. But then Saddam Hussein stood trial and with some other former regime officials. And he looked much different now. He was slightly gaunt. He had a beard, but it was trimmed and he would wear a dark suit with no tie. And he would be in this courtroom in these sort of, it's like a transparent holding cell. So, you know, th these images, when you see him, he was a caged man almost, sort of treated a little bit like an, an exhibit for Iraqi history. And yet Saddam did not whimper. He did not plead for his life. And he would defend his mass cruelty. He sneered at his accusers. He called them collaborators and infidels. And one strange detail of all this is that one of his lawyers was Lyndon Johnson's attorney general, Ramsey Clark. And here is Ramsey Clark making, in my view, the bizarre and false case that this trial has to be perceived to be free and fair because there were other Iraqis or many Iraqis out there who still supported Saddam Hussein. That, by the way, it turned out that Saddam's execution was widely popular all over the country for the most part. So here's Ramsey Clark. And this trial can either divide or heal. And unless it is seen as absolutely fair and is absolutely fair in fact, it will irreconcilably divide the people of Iraq. All right. Well, the actual trial of a villain of Saddam's stature, it was never really about due process or demonstrating that the rule of law is universal. I mean, this comes from Nuremberg after World War II, where Nazis were tried and then hung. And at the time, it was like, I think it was seen as a way to sort of demonstrate that we were superior, we were civilized, we, we believed in the universality of the rule of law and so forth. But it's not like we needed this process the way we, we would in a normal trial to find the truth, to find the guilt or innocence of Saddam Hussein. Everybody knew Saddam Hussein was guilty. I mean, he was, he was the dictator and he was responsible for all of this. So as it's, I, even though it's a trial, it's not exactly a trial in that traditional sense. I think a better way to look at the trial is that it was a sort of, it was an opportunity, not the only opportunity, but it was an opportunity to account for all time, for posterity, the horrors that I think a lot of Iraqis, even a lot of Iraqi victims, wish to forget. So if you had to, in a society like Bathist Iraq, oftentimes, like that scene we saw, you know, with the purge and, and Saddam coming to power in 1979, you are forced to participate in the cruelty of the state. 
So there are a lot of people who just want to like forget it, and yet we shouldn't forget it. It's one of the great things, by the way, that Kanamakia did, which is he he had something called the Iraq Memory Project, because it is very important that all of the horrors of Saddam's reign will be preserved for history, hopefully, so future generations can learn it from it. Anyway, so I want to bring things kind of full circle, and that is I started off talking about why it was a good thing that the tyrant was dead, even if we could quibble with the manner in which he was killed. But there is a downside, and that was that the execution of Saddam Hussein was premature. It came only at the beginning of his reckoning. Saddam was strung up after being convicted for only one of his many crimes against humanity, a mass killing in Dujail in 1982. Now, 148 people were killed. Whole families were snatched in the middle of the night and taken to the tyrant's torture chamber at Abu Ghraib. Later, many were resettled in these fetid and awful camps in the Western Desert. An underground Shia political party known as Dawa, they had tried in 1982 to kill the dictator as he visited Dijal during a kind of PR visit that was being televised was during the Iran-Iraq war. Anyway, it's interesting. You can look it up. There's, there is Iraqi television footage from that day. And you can tell that Saddam sort of deep down knows that everybody hates him. So he's in someone's home. He's offered a glass of water and he refuses because he probably thought, be an opportunity to poison me because there are a lot of people who would like to see me dead, which was true. Anyway, I want to just make it very clear. Dujal was horrific, absolutely terrible. But compared to the body of the savage's work, it was a mere drop in an ocean of blood. I mean, what about the trial for his gassing of the civilians at Halabja, where he used VX and mustard gas against whole families? Or the campaign against the Kurds that was known as Onfall, that we talked about earlier? And... At the same time, aren't there like these things that aren't necessarily mass killings or something like that that should also be accounted for, such as, you know, because of Saddam Hussein, the Ba'ath Party transformed Iraqi society. Children were encouraged to ride out their parents. Neighbor was turned against neighbor. I blame Saddam for destroying an organic social fabric of Iraqi society and replacing it with this cult of personality. And it raises questions. I mean, can a court even attempt to adjudicate such a crime? And I think the answer is no, because justice for horrors of that scale are not achieved in a courtroom. Such justice is really only secured through war or revolution. And, you know, with that in mind, let's think about it like this. It's been 20 years since America finished the war that it started fighting in 1991. The conventional wisdom is that H.W. Bush did the right thing in 91 and W. Bush did the foolish thing, because look at what happened next. But I look at it differently. I think when you put someone like Saddam Hussein in charge of an entire country, the bloodletting is inevitable once the dictator is gone. And the longer the dictator stays, it's sort of like you're stealing whole years from millions of people who have to live under this. that aren't the lucky, talented few that were able to get out. So by doing this, the prudent thing in 1991, Iraqis were subjected to another dozen years of life under Saddam Hussein, plus all of the sanctions. And I think that those additional 12 years kind of almost guaranteed that the dissolution of the state, the bloodletting, the competitive ethnic cleansing that would follow would be that much worse. Sometimes when you're confronted with a monster, you need to just rip off the Band-Aid. And at the time, in 2003, America was the world's remaining superpower. If America didn't do it, no one would do it. I realize this is not a popular opinion, I don't think there would find many politicians of either party who would endorse this view, but that's why it's my show, and that's how I feel. So here's how I would end it. 
for all of its flaws today in Iraq, and there are many, it is corrupt, there are sectarian militias, too much Iranian influence, and for all the killings that followed the liberation of Iraq, the country is nonetheless better off because the regime of Saddam Hussein is no more. Diva, why have you engulfed so many hearts? Eva, Eva, why have you destroyed so many minds? Leaving Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today, we are so fortunate for our show about the Iraq War to have a former senior advisor to Vice President Cheney, a former senior advisor to John Bolton in the George W. Bush administration, and one of the sort of people who was there at the beginning and can talk about the decision to end the regime of Saddam Hussein, David Wormser. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. It's always a pleasure, and it's it's an honor to be on. Oh, well, it's great to have you here. So let me, let me start off. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to have you is that you wrote, in my view, a very very influential monograph in the late 1990s when you were, you, and you were a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute that made the case back then for regime change in Iraq. And I was wondering if you could just maybe start with talking about, maybe just explaining what, what Iraq was like and the threat of Saddam Hussein, not just to American interests, but to the region when, you know, George W. Bush, or I should say after 9-11, when the war for Iraq was seriously being debated within the Bush administration. Yeah. Well, what happened was, you know, the first thing we have to remember is that Saddam Hussein had a tremendous history of invading his neighbors, being highly aggressive, claiming tens and hundreds of millions of lives, I mean, hundreds of thousands of lives through these aggressions, which were generally unprovoked. I'm no fan of the Iranian regime. Anybody who reads the internet knows that I'm identified as one of the great enemies of the Iranian regime right now. But in this specific case, there's a lot of indications that, I mean, while the Iranians certainly did try to foment a little unrest in Iraq, this was an unprovoked aggression to invade Iran in 1980, and and then onwards with with over and over again. Once frustrated after the 1991 invasion of Kuwait, Saddam turned his 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 aggression internally, and he attacked the Kurds, his own citizens, and killed tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands of them. And then he attacked the Shiites in the south after the Kuwait war, killing many thousands of them. So this is a man who who practices mass murder as a habit. He also was a man who had clear aspirations to destroy Israel, was building the means to do so through a nuclear arsenal, missiles, and so forth. So this this is an uncontained... I want you to slow down just a minute here, because one of the things that 
you know, the sort of thumbnail summary of the Iraq war 20 years later is that the president claimed there was weapons of mass destruction and that the inspectors couldn't find the stockpiles of those weapons of mass destruction. And some, although I don't, I, I will vigorously say there's no real evidence of this would say that the entire idea that there was a, a, a WMD threat from Saddam was a hoax. It was a lie. That's never, I don't, I wouldn't say as a lie just because they couldn't find, but maybe explain what you mean by saying sure. he had a nuclear program. Well, I'm, I'm talking about prior to 1991 and, and, That's right. okay. and, and, and the Israelis took out the nuclear program, but he was clearly hell-bent on continuing and pursuing it. So when 91 happened, which was the invasion of Kuwait, and then the United States was 1990, and then 91, when the United States shoved them out of Kuwait militarily, there, the ceasefire involved a number of different attributes. One was a complete disarming of all these weapons of mass destruction programs. And second of all, was, was a series of provisions on human rights and treatment of his own country, which then we saw how he behaved, first of all, on the human rights side. He became even more repressive, if that was possible, and, and used all sorts of equipment and weaponry against the Shiites in the South, continued to use them against the North. So the United States just out of despair, had to set up a no-fly zone in northern Iraq uh, to protect the Kurds from, from his viciousness and human tragedy that then would result. On the weapons of mass destruction side, every single report after the war in 2003 showed that he was preparing for breakout. He was restrained by sanctions, and his arsenals were more... Well, he didn't have an arsenal. His programs were essentially what you'd expect for somebody who doesn't have the means to build them because he's under such restrictions, but doing everything he can to lay the groundwork for a massive, sudden, rapid breakout once the sanctions are lifted. So that takes us to the end of the 90s, which is the world community was losing resolve vis-a-vis -vis Saddam and the sanctions were beginning to unravel. People were beginning to cheat. And the United States, in an attempt, uh, tried to get ahead of the retreat on sanctions by beginning to come up with formulas like smart sanctions, which reduced the sanctions, but tried to hold the line on certain other sanctions. So at the end of the 90s, where we were was Saddam was preparing for breakout, but couldn't do it because he was still restricted. He hadn't come clean on any of the weapons of mass destruction provisions of the ceasefire. We can get into that later. He completely obliterated the human rights elements of the ceasefire. He didn't accept his position. He had, by the way, in 96, he surged his forces south potentially again to invade Kuwait. So he showed no signs of moderating in any shape or form. He was engaged in international terror. Abu Musa was there. A number of other terrorists were there. He was killing his own people, and sanctions were beginning to unravel. So that's where we are at the end of the 90s. And then comes 9-11, and there's this feeling that I think everybody had that we're, we've been dealing with the problems of the Middle East as a fire brigade deals with a fire. We've been putting out fires as they, 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 they flare up, but we haven't dealt with the underlying circumstances of these fires, which is the specific characteristic of two or three regimes in the region that simply 
base their very political identity on violence. Okay, so I want to I want to just emphasize something that you were saying. It's a point that I think has gotten lost to history almost, which is that the the way that the sanctions regime worked after the ceasefire that ended the 1991 Gulf War, where Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and then U.S. and well, U.S. led coalition forces drove him out of Kuwait, was that he had to demonstrate that he had disarmed his weapons of mass destruction. It was not he could disarm, pretend that he had weapons of mass destruction, you know, fire at surveillance craft, you know, you know, what, what did he do to the weapons inspectors in 98? He, he, you know, like kept them hostage for a couple days. He, you know, deny access to anybody, to the scientists that worked for the regime. It, it, that was not the deal. The deal wasn't, you have to guess right if he's lying or not. The deal yeah. was, you have to come clean well, as a term of the ceasefire. And that's how serious it was. And the fact that he didn't come clean is not debatable. That's that's a fact. No, in fact, we know yeah. that there are thousands of chemical shells that were never accounted for. He claimed to destroy them. But, you know, he was in a treaty, the Chemical Weapons Convention. You have to have international monitors when you destroy chemical weapons to verify their destruction. But he said, no. I just destroyed them. They're gone. Can't find them. So you won't find them. They don't exist. Number one. Number two, you know, I mean, I'm not betraying any national secrets at this point, but, you know, too many times we saw inspectors showing up at the front gate of a military installation and trucks with equipment fly, you know, running out from the back door of the installation, clearly indicating that he was trying to hide something. So uh, there, there was really no sense, and, there, and anybody who says there was, this was not political level trying to impose on the intelligence community. Every single intelligence officer, and not only in the United States, but in our allies as well, knew that he was trying to hide stuff. We didn't, well, there was a disagreement, we should say. There, were, there, was, there wasn't a lot of certainty, and Mohammed al-Baradai, who was head of the International Atomic Energy Agency at the time, there was some dispute about what was the status of his nuclear program. But on chemical and biological weapons, I don't think anybody thought that he wasn't, he was complying with the, with the weapons inspectors, and the weapons inspectors themselves said they, that he wasn't. But more importantly, the assumption was that if he had something to hide, he was willing to endure sanctions, he was willing to endure censure, he was willing to endure UN Security Council resolutions, and finally, he was willing to endure the final UN Security Council resolution in 2002, which said, this is it, your last chance, you got to come clean. That was the 17th one. But the assumption was that it was not like the Gulf of Tonkin resolution or something, right. where there was an alleged attack that didn't happen. This was a process that was pretty clear that Saddam had violated. Now, fascinating, interesting point here that what we learned afterwards, after the regime falls and he's interviewed and his senior commanders are interviewed, of course, is that he wanted the world to think he had weapons of mass destruction, which he did not have because he wanted to get rid of the sanctions, rebuild his program, but he never wanted to make it seem like he didn't have you know, these terrible weapons because he wanted to intimidate his own population. He wanted to intimidate the Iranians. He wanted to have his neighbors convinced that he was still capable of, of great violence. You know, I think it's an important point to make, that, that, that what you're heading toward, which is 
it was not the accusation of the United States that he had vast arsenals of weapons of mass destruction or that he had mature programs. Well, I mean, there was the the line from Rumsfeld saying that he had stockpiles. That he might have there was there was there were some there was some excessive rhetoric certainly there probably that he was had yeah yeah and, right. and he could have been referring to the shells the chemical shells <clears throat> but by and large we all knew that sanctions had restrained him the right. problem in nineteen nine in two thousand one was that we didn't two thousand one to two thousand three frankly the problem from nineteen ninety six seven onward was that we all knew that sanctions were, were beginning to unravel, that they were beginning to become frayed, and that these controls that had been relatively effective in keeping his weapons of mass destruction programs more in the theoretical and infrastructure preparatory stages and not in the arsenal and mature phases was beginning to unravel. And you know, one has to remember this didn't happen in a vacuum. This happened immediately after 9-11, when, a, when the United States... Well, I want to get to 9-11, but before I do, I just want to focus on something else, which is a policy that was pursued by Bill Clinton on this. It was called dual containment. Sometimes this is a version of what a realist international relations expert, John Mearsheimer, calls offshore balancing. And as yourself, a kind of IR expert. I wanted to ask you, just that policy was basically right. I mean, that was, let's have a weakened Iran and a weakened Iraq counterbalance each other. Is that basically the idea? I think the idea was you'd have a weakened both balancing each other like you described, but the practicality of it is that over time, you would see Iran pursuing its nuclear weapons and Iraq constantly pushing the envelope on sanctions to the point of collapse, pursuing its weapons of mass destruction. And you already started hearing voices here and there, first of all, before 91, certainly, but certainly after 2000, 2001, you started hearing voices beginning to emerge. Oh, you might need Iraq against Iran. You need Iran against Iraq. You started seeing the intellectual framework being laid for lifting sanctions, giving Saddam a break because you need him against Iran. The Iranian, those who were more pro-Iranian said, ah, you know, you need the Iranians, you can't understand their nuclear program unless you accept Iraq and the danger of Iraq. So both were beginning to use the other to justify a breakout of of both. Uh, But this was the, I just want to, this is a, this was a, this was a kind of consensus policy in Washington, the idea of a dual containment. And that's where I want to start with there was a neoconservative critique of that, which I think is a humanitarian critique, which, you know, to to some some listeners might sound crazy because the neoconservatives are, I think, unfairly sometimes de- seen as warmongers. But the, the idea of dual containment is that you have basically two tyrannies which are oppressing their own populations as counterweights to one another, but they are existing in perpetuity. And, and that itself, to me, is a kind of cruelty, if you want to think about it as grand strategy or great power politics, from, from the U.S. being a great power. You know, it's a very important point you make, Eli, because, you know, I come from a Middle East scholars background, but, but the vast majority of the policymakers and neocons came from 
a security point of view. They came from the Cold War. Right. And containment for them, what they saw in the 90s and the, and the 80s and the collapse of the Soviet Union was that it wasn't really moral to draw such a solid line of containment, take off the table any idea of regime change or liberation of these people or freedom or even just getting them more freedom. And writing them off as all kind of, well, they're all Slavs who side with the Soviets, or even that the Russians are all sort of all communists, and they all sort of like their communist regime, and there isn't really a tradition of democracy, et cetera. There was a very strong sense at the end of the Cold War, especially as it had, after it ended, that, that we had done something wrong in writing off the populations of Eastern Europe and Russia so thoroughly and just treating it as a perpet, at perpet, you know, in perpetuity standoff with nuclear weapons and ma mass mutual assured destruction, and and essentially holding populations hostage. One thing we found out is, you know, ultimately some regimes don't care if their populations get annihilated. Well, that's what so we learned not, in some ways in Iraq. I mean, he, yeah, this, exactly. Saddam Hussein certainly there. not hostage right. populations like the Eastern right. Europeans were. So there, there came out of the sense of the cold, at the end of the Cold War, a sense that containment isn't necessarily such a moral policy. That there, well, I, that, I want to just push on that, though, because part of it was that we knew that the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons. Yeah. And that there was a risk if the United States, say, had militarily stopped the Soviets when they went into Hungary in 56 or when they went into Czechoslovakia in 68. That you would be lighting the fuse for World War Three, or, or at the at the best case scenario, a non-nuclear Great European War, the worst case scenario, nuclear exchange. So that there was an element where you know, America was very powerful after World War Two, but it wasn't all powerful. We uh, and that I mean, there was a limit to what we could accomplish, even if we wanted to support, you know, the aspirations of the Eastern Europeans. Yeah, we're going through some of the same debates right now over Ukraine, but yes. But but, you know, you have to go back to the beginning of the Cold War with Paul Nitze and what NSC 68 and what his concept was in mobilizing America. He assumed when NSC 68 was begun, the Soviets had not yet developed their nuclear weapon. But he said in his writings that it was inevitable that they were going to get it very soon. And right. essentially, nuclear weapons will cancel out nuclear weapons. That's why he believed in a massive conventional buildup of the United States. Because he believed that, that ultimately it's offsetting penalties to nuclear weapons. And America has to be able to fight and win the conventional war without turning nuclear. Now, why do I say that? Because that sort of rippled through the entire Cold War all the way until the Reagan administration. When there was a sense among some in the administration, especially the neocons, that there was a winnable strategy that the nuclear weapons were essentially a standoff, but politically you could delegitimize communism and you could delegitimize and you can delegitimize the Soviet regime and you can build up the moral confidence and political gravity of opposition forces we knew existed in Eastern Europe and give them a chance to fundamentally change the game. It's not correct to think that Reagan thought the Cold War would go forever. He believed, and by the way, even the early framers of, of containment 
did not believe the Soviet Union would last forever. The whole point of containment was to essentially box in a revolutionary ideology, which then couldn't digest stasis, couldn't digest stagnation, and eventually would its its aggressiveness would implode, and 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 the Soviet Union would collapse. There was never a sense in the fifties that we would be in a standoff forever with the Soviet Union. Implied in it all along was an ideological and therefore political defeat of the Soviet Union. That came out in the Reagan administration again. It was sort of put on the back burner in the 70s, but it came out in the Reagan administration again that there was this confidence that you can challenge the Soviet Union, that nuclear weapons have to be prepared and put in a position of being in a standoff. And, and, but deep down, the ideological warfare needed to continue, and the goal of it was to, be, to pursue victory. So there was a freedom agenda deeply embedded in the neocon camp, the right. neoconservative camp coming out of the 80s. And this is the mentality that, that led to the Middle East. And I think the big debate is not whether Saddam was a horrible person, not whether we wouldn't have eventually faced Saddam with resurrected programs that were highly dangerous had he stayed in office another 10, 20 years. Not that we would have been in this Hobson's choice of do we want Iran to go nuclear to balance Iraq? Do we want Iraq to go nuclear to balance Iran and all the instability that would maintain that would obtain from that? That that's a major set of questions. But the, the, the other question was, do you believe that Arabs should be given a chance to have a shot at freedom, especially Arabs that had just lived through one of the most oppressive, cruel uh, frankly, sadistic regimes on earth, Saddam's. So I think deep down, the idea of freedom had a major impact on the policymakers as they approached Saddam. And the, and the Arab question, and I remember one of the big things out there was the accusation from the neocon side against the realists and others that the the, the prejudice of low expectations had had forgot exactly how the soft bigotry of low expectations. That exactly. was the line that Marvin Olasky drafted for George W. Bush in his two th in his in his in his famous campaign in 2000. But it was referring actually at the time to the liberal pieties about education policy. And it was talking about, you know, the, right. the notion so, that you couldn't have excellent schools in the inner cities or something. Right. So while we couldn't impose freedom on the Arab world, yeah. it was at least important to give them a shot. And no better I, yes. place to start than a place in which they had suffered the most from the lack of freedom and okay. that most threatened its neighbors and where the death toll daily by this regime's cruelty was 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 hor horrific. So there was a feeling this is where you should start. And then strategically, sitting between Syria and Iran, this yeah. was a major important element too. You had a block of nations that was frankly quite terrifying in their behaviors, one of which we knew was at the time pursuing nuclear weapons. The other one seems to have gotten some of Saddam's equipment, and we had no idea later, two, three, only, only three, four, three, four years later, we, we realized they were beginning to pursue nuclear weapons, Syria. And Saddam, who sat there always husbanding the resources and infrastructure for breakout. So it was important to break that chain too.
strategic. Okay. Now I want to get to what you know. To nine eleven happens, and that does change. I think the both the political dynamic, but also the sort of strategic way that the W administration looked at the Middle East and the Islamic world, and it's sort of it it now it no longer became you know possible. I think to I mean the the, the famous phrase was you're either with us or against us. And that meant that for if you're Iraq, you you were either, you know, going to be, I guess, a counterterrorism ally, which just is kind of unthinkable given the fact that, you know, Saddam Hussein's regime go, starting in the 70s becomes the safe haven for all manner of terrorism. Well, most of it, we should say, is of the socialist nationalist variety, the Abu Nidals. But nonetheless, it, you know, to think that he's going to be some ally against Al Qaeda seems to be, you know, a bridge too far. But then there were also people, and I wanted to kind of just, this is important. Did you ever think that, that Saddam would have had anything to do with 9-11? I don't think that, I think that's been discredited, but was there any connection there? Oh, Lori Milroy I, famously said that. and Lori, Lori said that and she pushed the envelope. I mean, let me put it this way. I was the one who formed that who started that, quote, rogue intelligence cell. The Office of Special Plans. Which morphed eventually into the Office of of Special Plans. And it was was September 12th, the day after September 11th. I was in the Pentagon. I met with Ken de Graffenried. Burning, it was still burning. The smoke, horrible. It 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 was a war zone. I had been a lieutenant commander in the Navy and had just retired a few months earlier. So all my clearances were still active. My uh, well, my security clearance was still active. My access to the information had to be rehabilitated only because you know they take your passwords and everything the moment you leave the building. That was easy to do. The DIA did that. They were quite suspicious of me because they felt that I was there to look over their shoulder and blame them for 9/11 as an intelligence failure. So it was a distrust from the beginning. I wasn't. I I, I remember telling one of the senior people in the DIA, "Listen, after." After the war's over, remember, this is September 12th, we're at war. After the yeah, war's cool. over, there will be plenty of time to point fingers. But right now, let's just get the damn whatever. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. So I was given full access. So I see a little room and I sat down and I started figuring out who talks to who, starting with the people that we think were doing it. From September 12th, still a little early, but it was pretty clear it was probably Al-Qaeda. Right. So we started mapping it out, me, and then I brought one guy over from my unit who was still active duty, and, and we, we formed a cell and we started working out. There was another guy involved, Mike Maloof, who left after about two, three, maybe a month at most. But at any rate, we started mapping out sort of like a, a beautiful mind, if you ever saw the movie, we yeah. had papers, and it looked kind of like that. We, it was, this was before the age of computers and AI and all that. So we would have an intelligence report and we'd put a, a pin on the board with the name of the, you know, what the intelligence report said, you know, so-and-so stayed at so-and-so's house. And then you have another one where, you know, so-and-so stayed at another so-and-so's house and you draw a line. And over time, you'd start seeing this massive network of various terrorists coming all the way from, you know, hyper-religious Sunni or Shiite all the way over to the most communist, secular, Arab nationalist. And even, you know, European terrorists and Japanese terrorists, you started seeing this massive terrorist network with thick and thin lines. So you could essentially begin to get a visual picture right. of, of what was the enemy. 
And then you start overlaying it countries. What, what countries were these terrorists most residing in? Who was giving them sanction? Who was giving them training and so forth? And what you began to see was that it was a classic way of warfare that Muhammad himself had originated, which is, did Muhammad command the armies on the border to raid this town or that tribe or so forth? And the answer is no. He had an ideological sort of push, and but he wasn't the tactical operational commander. So if you're trying to find that Saddam ordered a terrorist to do X, you're not going to find it. There's because he probably didn't. What what happened was that there was this world, this this morass or this swamp of terrorist organizations that was readily available for any nation to incite into attacking. And most importantly, and this is something Fuadajami said in an article right after 9-11, that there was sort of an agreement between governments and who were sponsoring training and helping these terrorists and governments who were often the victim, that there was a desire to export the terrorist problem to avoid having it come back at them. So the Saudis and others would essentially pay off the terrorists, right. whether it's the PLO or others, and Egypt or so forth. And of course, that was the innovation that bin Laden himself brought in, which is to, instead of just attack fellow Arab regimes, he externalized it onto the West to attack the West itself. So that you saw that shift in the six years before 9-11. So what you got was in 9-11 and in this, this rogue intelligence cell that I developed, you started seeing that there was a world of terrorism and there were a world of regimes that tapped into it. And there were a world of regimes that were scared, that, that did what they had to do to, to feed the tiger, essentially. So did Saddam actually order it? I didn't think so. Did some organizations in his capital know that it was going to happen? I believe one did. The slide package that I put together describing these networks was way over 100 pages. I don't remember how much, 120, 130 pages, something like that. I only had one or two pages on Saddam in Iraq. I had 17, I believe, on, on Iran. So well, the irony is that we found that Iran had far more connections to- Correct. And, and we knew it back then. That, that that was the thing. I mean, there, there certainly were some things where Saddam had worked with some of the terrorists who were involved. But again, did he order them? No, I don't think there was any evidence of that. But did he did he contribute to this world of, of threat? Absolutely. Absolutely. And also remember that in this period is the second intifada. Saddam Hussein is openly paying the families of so-called martyrs, i.e. suicide bombers in Israel. Mm -hmm. It's an open... You know, it's not a, that's not a secret. That was a, a deliberate kind of strategy. And, you know, we also knew that people like Abu Nidal and, yeah. you know, people who were wanted by the U.S., who were wanted by U.S. courts, we should say, for years, were enjoying a safe haven. But there were two, this whole exercise that I did over a period of a few months, developing this, this, this massive map of terrorism. It, it struck at the assumptions of the U.S. government, which were a few. One was that Sunnis and Shiites never work together. 
Two, that secular Arab nationalists and religious-based terrorists don't work together. And what became very clear very quickly is that was just simply wrong. Right. They would, you know, you'd see Sunnis using Shiite terrorists, Shiites using Sunni secular Arab nationalists. You know, we can't get around the fact that the first visitor to Tehran after the revolution in 1979 was, was Yasser Arafat the arch right. enemy of Shiites in Lebanon. Shiites right. in Lebanon hated Arafat and the PLO. They saw it as Sunni supremacism that killed Shiites. And also yet, it was Arafat. Arafat endorsed the invasion of Kuwait. Correct. In 1991. So, you know, correct. there's a lot was of a this. big supporter of, 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 of uh, Saddam as well. But, but the point is that he was the first visitor to Tehran. Right. He sent one of his most talented assistance from his own personal security force, Force 17, Emad Mokhnia, to set up the foreign terrorist structure that, that then morphed into Hezbollah and, and so forth. So the connections between Sunnis and Shiites, secular and religious, this was falling apart rapidly as this picture emerged. And then the second thing is Again, I, as I, I want to make clear, Saddam, there was no evidence Saddam ordered the terrorists to attack in 9-11, but Saddam was deeply involved in this world of terror and in, in enabling it, training it, arming it, and sometimes using it. And as a result, there was a big second divide in the United States government, which was what was 9-11. One crowd believed that it was a terrorist organization that went that got lucky. And, and as a result, you and it was a Sunni religious terrorist organization. So going back to the assumptions, so it would make sense then if it was a Sunni Arab terrorist organization, Sunni Arab terrorist organization that quote got lucky, and and that that those assumptions were valid, that you would go with Sunni regimes that were secular to attack this, these terrorists because they were threatened by the religiousness of them. And Shiite regimes like Iran to attack to 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 attack these terrorists. So you would align with countries like Libya, Syria, Iran in order to crush Al Qaeda. If you put the assumptions together and the idea that it was a non-governmental actor, and this was a period in which it was believed that non-governmental actors were beginning to supersede the importance of the state. So that crowd led to a very tactical response, narrowly focused on Al-Qaeda. Right. The other side believed, no, we're dealing with this swamp of terrorism. The politics of the Middle East had enabled and created this massive swamp of terrorism that can no longer be contained to the Middle East. It was overflowing, whether it's the attempt to take out the Eiffel Tower, whether it was attacks on, on European targets, Jewish targets, Israeli targets, Western targets, whether ultimately it was 9-11 in the United States and the continuation. So for another crowd, which to which I belonged, it was simply that the politics of the Middle East had reached a point of dangerousness, that something had to be done to change the language, change the foundations of regional politics, and that regimes were implicit it were, were, were implicitly involved in using terrorism to advance their interests. 
And that very policy had to be discredited. If even it wasn't a specific attachment between Saddam and the terrorists, uh, ordering them to do it, Saddam was implicated. Iran was implicated, Syria was implicated, and Libya was implicated. Ultimately, North Korea too, and in another zone in another world. And that, that that form of politics was the enemy, not the specific single terrorist organization. Because tomorrow it would be somebody else. And that we had already since the 60s dealt with the PLO and Abu Nidal and Abu Musa and blah, blah, blah. So so we knew that this was a problem that was simply going to grow unless the swamp underneath was was drained and the swamp could be drained only if you could fundamentally change the regimes that filled the swamp. All right. So, so you've just made, I think, a compelling argument and a, and a subtle one about the thinking behind regime change after 9-11 and why it focused on Iraq and why it was broader in some ways than just Iraq. But Kind of coming back to Iraq, you've made the argument for a regime change, but you've not necessarily made the argument for a military invasion. No. And maybe you could just spend a, a little bit of time now talking about, I mean, before 9-11, 1998, there's something called the Iraq Liberation Act, which is essentially a bill that was, you know, was not exactly signed by Clinton, but he didn't veto it, that made it U.S. policy of regime change in Iraq. That was before 9-11. And it committed the United States to training a kind of rebel force known as the Iraqi National Congress under the late Ahmed Chalabi. So this was already kind of in the air. There were a lot of, it was a lot of Democrats, a lot of Republicans. It was not a partisan issue. But that envisioned regime change by, you know, kind of support for, you know, various local fighters encouraging defections, you know, similar to uh, U.S. policies during the Cold War, say, in like Central America and things like that. So talk a little bit about that. You've got a concept of regime change. And then how did that go? How did we you get know, from I, regime change to military invasion and reconstruction? You know, you're really you're going down a very interesting path here because and I think the, the critically important path here. Yeah. The, the reason for it is, you know, regime change was a was almost a universal idea in Washington prior to 9-11 in Iraq. And, and by that, I mean, the question was, what sort of regime change? Half of Washington wanted a coup. And they thought right. that you could find the general who would and not- By the way, they, we should say, we, we know this, this is not, we're not revealing any state secrets or anything, not like I've never worked for the government, so it wouldn't be a problem. There was a failed coup mm-hmm. in the 1990s that it was a plot that Saddam had figured out and it was terrible what happened to the people who were behind it. It was, it was a, yeah. a, a so yeah there was and then we tried and we we had others and you know there was all sorts of things and 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 you know you you also had with after hussein kamal the cousin or the brother the son-in-law of saddam who defected to jordan in 1995-1996 and then mysteriously and insanely went back to be executed but nevertheless there was this hope that that was where really the fissure began where one side started seeing a coup possible that you could get you could get Hussein Kamal having been so involved with the with the Saddam family and being of the core structure and others could perhaps through Jordan or so forth we could identify key generals that maybe would launch a coup and that would be a regime change and we would hope that it would be moderate then the other side was basically saying that what was represented by Hussein Kamal and afterwards was the far broader 
collapse of support for the Iranian regime and uh, Iraqi regime in Iraq. I personally was called up in 96 for indefinite period in the, in the Navy intelligence because Saddam surged southward, Operation Vigilant Warrior, in 96 with all his troops. And we, we had called it, so, so I was called up. But what was very interesting about that, and it was quite a formative event, was when Saddam withdrew the troops, some of the divisions went through Baghdad, and he was so terrified that he readied his plane at the airport. And it was, it was a moment where you could see the fear Saddam had of his own army, and he was not secure of the tribes. Similarly, when Hussein Kamal defected and so forth, it was very clear because he acted brutally to the Dulaim tribe and other tribes, which were core tribes of his regime, core loyalists. The way he executed the daughters of the tribal chiefs and sent yeah. their body pieces back and so forth, you could see that this was a man that was terrified of a broader opposition. So two camps there emerged that then translated in the post-9-11 world into the other camps that I mentioned before. One camp believed you need to get rid of Ba'athism, that that politics, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Iraq, is of the like of the terror of the of the politics of Libya of of Libya is at least as as eclectic as 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 Gaddafi was, but the PLO etc. That you had that sort of a world, and you you wouldn't really get a better result, maybe even a worse result if you got if you got a Baathist coup, because then all the sanctions would be lifted and so forth, and you'd have a Syria-like regime that would be close, you know, then going for breakout of. Of, of weapons of mass destruction. So to us, there was no solution to, to my camp. There was no solution in simply an internal Baathist coup, apart from the fact that I didn't believe that such a thing was likely. On the other side, you had those who said, listen, why the big effort? Just change the regime by getting a general. So it's a, essentially, there was, there was that fissure already going back to 95, 96. But I, I want to make clear, everybody believed that the goal was regime change, getting rid of Saddam in some shape and or I, form. I just think it's important to say that regime change need not be a full invasion. And we have a, a, about, you know, yes. we have a few, few minutes left here. So I want to get into the actual, you know, that was decided after 9-11. You couldn't take any chances. So there was a full invasion of Iraq while there was still an effort to rebuild Afghanistan. And we can't get into all of that, but maybe you could just say, why did that view win as opposed to a sort of, you know, CIA plus special operators plus yeah. Iraqi National well, Congress approach? I think, like you know, that? The, the myth that grew is that somehow this clever man, Ahmed Chalabi, flamboozled the whole crowd of American officials. He didn't want it. He wanted, he wanted that. He wanted, yeah. to, he wanted and, Pentagon training for his fighters. He didn't want Exactly. And basically, he ran the U.S. government and led us down a garden path for his interests. It's the inverse of the truth, as you just said, Eli. It was we, many of us who were scholars of the Middle East involved with what was going on, were terrified of what the Israelis encountered in Lebanon, which is they went in and they stayed. They went in with massive force in 1982, and they stayed. And then they became 
the sheikh, the Qadi, whatever, they had to navigate between all the factions who were fighting each other. They essentially became a Lebanese government, a Lebanese tribe, right. something a Western democratic country cannot do. This is not how right. we think. This is not moral on our side. It just violates everything of who we are. So we saw Israel's presence there as a huge mistake, that it was it was one thing for it to go in in 82. It was another thing for it to try to play Lebanese politics and stay en masse in, in, inside the middle of, 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 of Lebanon. So when we looked at Iraq, two things were very clear to us. One is that the massive amount of opposition to Saddam can be galvanized. And if done correctly, you may be able, remember I mentioned that we all came from the Cold War, that people power may be able to do this if they have an organized external structure helping them to organize the internal opposition that you may be able to avoid everything altogether and, and that they can actually liberate their country, that eventually the wages of tyranny would, would, would be paid and the tyrant would fall like they always do. So that was one element we need. If, if Ahmed Chalabi didn't exist, we would have had to invent him. Right. The second part of it is once 9-11 happened and the timeline had to move forward, we felt a lighter force in an instant, given the Israeli experience, an instant turnover of the Iraqi government to the Iraqi people after an invasion. So go in light get out fast. That was the reason why Ahmed Chalabi was needed in the context of the invasion of Iraq, because we looked at him like perhaps, perhaps a De Gaulle-like figure, maybe not. The Iraqi National Congress was at least some structure. We needed something to turn government. The, the, we did not want to become a colonial presence in Iraq. Again, we weren't there. We kind of, for a period, we we were in some ways, even though well, that, there was a UN. That I think was another big fight in the government. Was those there were many of us who wanted just to to decentralize Iraq to some extent, not break it up, but decentralize it, turn it over to them, let them run their own affairs. After after forty years of of hell, you'd imagine that they they would want their dignity and their freedom is the first thing. It's the one thing we denied them: is their dignity and freedom. We took over everything. So well, there but there was another element too, which is I think the late Christopher Hitchens before the war in a really prescient like Charlie Rose interview said, listen, this, this is not sustainable. If you don't think that there was going to be a need for some sort of intervention when this regime starts to crumble, then you've got another thing coming. It's, it's coming soon. You know, let's do it on our own terms. And that was really, I think, it, so in some ways, you know, what's happened is that we all know, and we should not minimize any of this, there was a horrendous period. I would say there were two terror wars in Iraq of horrible bloodletting, of awful revenge killings, of Shia death squads and Sunni car bombers, and it was vicious. And I was spent a lot of time there as a journalist in the 2000s and the 2010s sort of seeing that, and it was absolutely devastating. The conventional narrative is that you you know you 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 build it you know you break it you own it and the united states is responsible for all of the violence after 2003 because they were the ones who changed the regime 
I, it's in some ways it's well, understandable, but on the other hand, it's also sort of ignoring any of the context and that there would be an inevitable kind of bloodletting and ethnic, there would be this kind of a sort of almost a civil war after the way that Saddam managed the country for 40 years. So what happened was, you know, I agree with that, but, and we're talking now about the post invasion yeah. period. I think if, if the Iraqis had been given more room, yes, it still would have led to civil war. And the reason why it would have led to civil war was because Iraq is not isolated. It's not in a vacuum. There are right. there were two neighbors, Syria and Iran, who were in a in a terrible state and determined to defeat America and Iraq. Now, I remember the very first memo I had to write for Vice President Cheney was it was end of August two thousand three, after I got to his office from transferred over from John Bolton's office at State. And the first memo I wrote was, Iran and Syria are waging war on us. And I had gone through immense amounts of intelligence, and it was very clear that the Syrians had activated the post-Hussein Kamal defection, which we talked about, the network of Sunni tribes in what here was a Ba'athist secular Arab nationalist regime led by Alawites using Sunni tribes. Again, the Sunnis. Yeah. But at any rate, they had this network, this alliance of tribes they thought they could use to destabilize and wage war on America and Iraq. But the way to do it was to attack Shiites so that Shiites would attack back against the Sunnis and we would be presiding, exactly what they did to the Israelis in Lebanon, that we would be presiding over an internal civil war being shot at by both sides and being seen by both sides as the agent of the other side. And that's what happened, yeah. The Iranians on the other side could then assert themselves as the defenders of the Shiites. So they would help the Syrians activate Sunni terrorists to attack Shiites, embarrass us, get the Shiites angry at us. And then the Iranians would say, we're protecting the Shiites. So there was a war being waged on us by Iran and Syria. And my argument is if we had gone more thoroughly with the concept of just turning over the government of Iraq as quickly as possible back to the Iraqis, we would have been in a much better position to confront the Iranians. And I think that was the big failure at that point, that we didn't understand that the Iraq war ultimately needed to be won in Tehran, not in But I mean, you understand, though, that like there was an inherent problem in that, in the sense that if the United States invaded, topples the regime and installs, say, Ahmad Chalabi or anyone, uh -huh. That's still our guy. So there's yeah. still this kind of legitimacy issue. Whereas yeah. it strikes me that if you had just sort of supported, you know, through, you know, special operators, I don't know if I would have trusted the CIA at that point, but, you know, and it was more of a kind of internal rebellion and you used the safe haven of the North as your staging ground and it wasn't, you know, U.S. boots on the ground, as they say, there probably would have been a much better chance. You probably would have had more well, legitimacy in what would have come after that. Prior to 9-11, that was the concept of supporting the INC, the Iraqi right. National It was Congress. just seen that after 9-11, there was too Nobody much urgency. Nobody was talking about an invasion of Iraq before 9-11. Yeah. It was just we then reached a point where it became more acute, and then Saddam himself behaved a certain way by throwing out inspectors and denying things and blah, blah, blah. But But... The, the, also, the he emptied is, his jails right before the invasion. We always forget yeah. that, but it's like a yeah, yeah. terrible tactic. Something, by the way, that Mubarak did right before his regime collapsed. It's something that it's a terrible thing that the tyrants do, but it's like saying, OK, I'm going to prove how much you really need me. 
and it's you but know. you know we talked about fissures what emerged right after the war was another big fissure which was what is shiism we had you know one side the british supported by most american policymakers that shiites are shiites and iran is the shiite government shiites are naturally loyal to to the shiite government of iran despite the fact that during the iraq war all the shiites showed up and fought hard on behalf of Saddam and the, and the Iraqi army. But nonetheless, the feeling was that the Shiites were essentially an extension of Iran. So you needed to come to terms with Iran. You needed a diplomatic process and some form of appeasement of Iran in order to stabilize Iraq. And every move we would do that, well, then there was the other camp that said, no, Iran is a revolution within Shiism. And the proof of that was one of the first things that happened in Iraq after the invasion was that somebody, and we know who it was, it was Iran, started killing all the traditional leadership of the oh, Iraqi right. Shiites. Home, not in Qom, I'm sorry. In, uh, in, Hakim in, and, yeah. and Sadr and, and Hoi and so forth were killed by Iranian agents because they were terrified of traditional Shiism. One has to remember how much of a revolution within Shiism the Iranian right. regime was. So the idea was that actually Iraq could become a Shiite dagger into Iran's heart because it is the more traditional, legitimate form of Shiism, not this revolutionary stuff that the Iranian regime had. We knew the Iranian regime was also not that popular. So we saw Iraq as a possibility for destabilizing Iran. The other side, the other camp felt that you needed to appease the Iranian regime to stabilize Iraq. And that was the policy that won out. It won out with the EU3 letter that the Europeans right. put out. It won out with Colin Powell and Armitage and Megan O'Sullivan and others who wanted to do, and Sawyers from Britain who wanted to essentially work with the Iranians to stabilize Iraq. But what it gave them was power inside Iraq to right. sabotage us. So in many ways, to me, the failure wasn't, it was, I think we should have, relied even more heavily on an exile force, turned over this exile force. We should have spent the year before the war in Iraq, and it was almost a year between September and April, well, half a year. We should have trained up a force, a big force of Iraqis to go in rather than us. I agree with you on all that. But even so, the big failure wasn't that. The big failure was not confronting Iran afterwards, because at, that made it impossible to win in Iraq at that point. Eventually, we managed to, and I think this is a point people miss these days, is by, nine, by 2007, eight, we actually had won in Iraq. It was relatively stabilized. It was a functioning democracy. It was corrupt, and it's become very corrupt. And the Iranians were finding it rather difficult to really herd the Iraqi Shiites. It was like herding cats. The, and the Iranians were having a lot of trouble, and Syria itself was beginning to descend into what eventually became its collapse. So, because it, it started facing it in Lebanon, and it was on the ropes in Lebanon in 2006 and seven. So, what you started seeing, and, and then the Al Qaeda was killed, the head of Al Qaeda was killed in, in Iraq. So, um, yeah, Zarqawi. So we are starting, but we want, we're winning because we started understanding you need to empower the tribes. You need to, you need to give them the ability to fight their war rather than us do it for them. 
So right. eventually the idea came through and it wasn't really the surge. And I, I split with my neocon allies. I don't believe it was the surge that won Iraq. I don't think it hurt. Uh, it maybe helped a little, but what really won the war in Iraq was great intelligence work by a number of people on the ground who managed finally to convince the various tribes that they were more threatened by the Iranians and the Sunni terrorists than they were threatened by us. Okay. Right before we go, I want to just, these are two questions and it could, I mean, it's a little unfair because they're, they're probably a longer conversation, but I want to just get you to move things to the current moment right now and discuss what's going on with the American right, what's going on with, I mean, I should say, Dave Wormser, you, you were a National Security Council official for the Trump administration, although you are not an isolationist or, you know, I mean, I don't need to go through all that right now, but what do you say now that it's what are known as the NATCONs, national conservatives that were saying, we don't want another party that's like the George W. Bush neocons that got us into Iraq and all of this other stuff. I have to say, I have some sympathy with some elements of the NATCON argument about the rot in some of the institutions of American national security, like the FBI. However, I worry that this is just this really simplistic notion that the United States can just stop being a great power. And I really do think that it is a kind of backhanded way of saying, we're just going to be an unexceptional nation. And I don't think it's in our character, but I'd love to hear, I think you are really brilliant on these questions about national identity. And I'd love to kind of hear, what do you say to the younger NatCon writers like our Saurabh Amari, you know, who would sort of say, why are we even talking about Iraq? It was a huge blunder. We should never do it again. I agree profoundly with the idea that America doesn't need to be constantly fighting these endless wars. Okay. But, so I have tremendous sympathy and I understand the exhaustion of the American people and it's legitimate. The problem is, where does it come from? It comes from indecisive victories or lack of victories. We have enemies. We will always have enemies. The question is, do you defeat them so decisively that it leads to a period of quiet afterwards, that people are afraid to take on the United States. You know, there's no accident behind what happened with Japan and Germany. The utter devastation traumatized those societies. Neither, even to this day, three generations later, it is an absolute taboo to raise any revanchist claims in either country. That war is off the table with them. I, I'm not advocating inflicting such trauma, but I am advocating that it is the failure to deal decisively with threats that allows them to linger and we withdraw, they hit us, we have to go in, we stay, they hit us, we have to stay more, we withdraw, they come back at us, they hit us. This indecisiveness is what has caused an endless war in the Middle East. If we had dealt with more decisively the Iranian threat, and, you know, again, not invading Iran. We have allies in Iran. The Iranian people are showing themselves how much of an ally they can be right now. If we would use those forces and we would make the point that such tyrannies of that sort, not any tyranny, but a tyranny that is ideological, totalitarian, sadistic, cruel, etc., will meet with an awful fate. I think you buy yourself a lot fewer wars and a lot fewer endless engagements. And right. yeah, America will periodically always have to go to war. The world matters, and the world has enemies. 
But the question is, do you win? And then you go home rather than you sort of win, not, yeah, maybe manage conflict and have to stay. And I would just, I think that's right. And I would add one more thought to it. The oldest form of government in the history of civilization is tyranny and despotism. It's relatively rare that you get republics that survive. And the survival of republics are a threat to tyrants anywhere. And it's as true as it was in the world of antiquity with ancient Athens as it is today. So what we should understand is that there is no real opportunity when you're talking about revisionist powers that believe in permanent revolutions, whether it's the Islamic Republic of Iran or it's the Soviet Union or it's the Third Reich. They cannot live in a world where you have a free people deciding its fate for themselves. True, Ultimately, it's, they, it's only a matter of finding the strength to defeat that experiment in freedom for the tyrant. Because the tyrant understands that that is an example to his own population and that it's Absolutely. a threat. Absolutely. So America should accept that <laughs> at a certain <laughs> level. <laughs> we, we, should, we have to learn that lesson over and over again, it seems. But, but I, would, I, would, I would also just sort of add, and I want to maybe get your thoughts on this and then we'll end it. We'll wrap it up. On the other hand, the United States is not good at long-term occupations or reconstructions. We are not like the British Empire. We're not comfortable in that role. It's not in our nature. We don't have the institutions for it. We easily get easily distracted. In some ways, the success of rebuilding Germany and Japan were the anomalies, and they were not the pattern. And so perhaps if we were to go back in time with the wisdom that we have now is to sort of say, before you invade Iraq, are you sure our country is up to that task, can, can, can manage to do that or, with the way our politics work in Washington and the way our country is and our expectations and, and everything? Do like you that. have an Iraqi army to take over? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one of the, you know, it's a big question, Eli, but I, there's, a, there's a sort of a deal at the center of the Cold War and afterwards in American foreign policy is that we would tell countries, whether it's Japan or Israel or, or any, any country in the world, Colombia, you know what? We're in a containment structure. The static, status or the static nature of the lines is important. So we don't want you to do wildcat renegade behaviors that could entangle us and destabilize the conflict. So, we understand you have your interests. We understand you have your own security concerns, but we will assume those concerns for you. We will provide you, whether it's qualitative military edge, whatever it is, we will provide you the umbrella and the means to essentially be strategically passive in return for which we get your cooperation and your restraint. What that did was it essentially made the entire world our charge. And it was burdensome, expensive, and exhausting. Instead, what we could have done, and what maybe not in the Cold War, but certainly since the Cold War, is identify countries that are most like us, most strongly our allies in a region, and to some extent, build them up, let them have much more latitude, and give them much more strength, or let them build their own strength in exchange for which we don't tether them as much. 
In other yeah. words, we have regional alliances that actually carry the water and actually defend th our interests through their strength in the region. And that way we don't have to engage as much. But that's not been the way. Control has been the central currency of our foreign policy, and especially our State Department's diplomacy since World War II, control. And it, you know, at, at a certain point, the, the, we need peer alliances, not, not a patron and a yeah. client. And I think that that's the strategic architecture that needs to be revised because America cannot be the police of the world all the time and everybody else is dependent on us. All right. Well, Dave Wormser, thank you so much for coming. We've got to have you back to have deeper conversations and kind of get into some of your academic expertise, talk about the pre-Islamic world. I'm really excited to, to sort of address some of those things as well. And I hope our listeners got what I think is a really, I hope, I think, I, I think it's a really valuable discussion that we just had. This is somebody who was there in the planning stages. It's not a point of view that got much coverage in the mainstream media at the time or to this day. So I hope it was valuable and I hope people learn something. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.